Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 127. And we're back at it again with the podcast after the coast ride, winding down that. And I talk a good amount about that in this week's episode, sort of a recap and the mindset and what we all observed. And I'm back into planning mode now for the Sonoma training camp here in April. And those dates have been set. It's going to be April 16th to the 19th. I just rented a, um, a big group house for us, not for the athletes to stay in. They will be in their own hotel so that they have their space and time to recover and sleep and so forth. But we'll have a house that we not only gather at and meet at and record a podcast at, as well as go over nutrition and have some education and some work with it. Um, All that will be happening at a house that we just rented. Nice pool and nice lounging area so that when we're not training, we're all together and having a nice time supported by a variety of uh, SAG support with cooking for us as well as supporting our bikes and making sure everything's mechanically okay for them for the busy weekend and so forth. So truly a... Uh, ultra endurance training camp. We'll do some uh, training on the Santa Rosa course and the Santa Rosa run course. So we'll have one day of sort of simulating, emulating an Ironman day. And then the other days, we're just going to ride in beautiful Sonoma County, uh, get spoiled by great food, um, beautiful cycling terrain, fun um, downtime, and just having a good time together for five or six days here in Sonoma County. I say five or six days. The camp is truly only four and a half days, but we're going to throw some testing in there that's included in the camp price. And also due to arrival and departure from Sonoma, it takes a little bit to get to San Francisco airport and back. So it usually turns into a five, six day event for many people. So But yeah, that's where we are right now, episode 127, and uh, this one will be um, the typical emails and some um, rambling of Chris as we uh, move into more of the season. It's almost February, and things are starting to wind down from a preseason standpoint. People start having events on the calendar here, marathons and so forth. And uh, we're going to dive right into that discussion. A lot of ultra running discussion today, how to train and mindset and how to simulate. But that's just coincidence on how that came up. I'm sure there's other times when there's a lot of triathlon emails. And um, yeah, we dive into all kinds of discussions around ultra endurance. And then next week, I am recording with a special guest. I'm excited to have him on the podcast. I will be recording next week. I'm going to be flying out to see him as well as traveling to Florida. So it's a combination of a personal visit as well as a business trip. And uh, yeah, that'll be the new part of the podcast that we're doing now. And that is we being in the royal we (laughs) that I am doing is... I'm going to revolve the month of the Weekly Word podcast around certain themes and, well, not certain themes, but a repeatable theme, and that will be one nutrition 
podcast, one athlete's mindset podcast, and two regular weekly word podcasts where I go over questions and um, talk about mindset and nutrition and recovery and sleep and training and strategy, anything we need to do for the ultra endurance journey that many of you are on. And it's funny, I'm writing a blog post currently about ultra endurance, and it's really bringing out not only why I do it and coach it, but why um, athletes seem to be curious about it and what brings them into the ultra endurance space. And it's sort of what I talk about every week here on the Weekly Word Podcast. And that is because I believe we're all curious. We're all curious into to, uh, to know what, what else is out there. How far can I go? How long can I go? And then also, what's on the other side of that, the new normal? How much can I do? And who do I become in that process? And that's the weekly word proce- process. That's the weekly word podcast, basically. Who we become as ultra endurance athletes, how to maintain the lifestyle of ultra endurance athletics, how to take care of ourselves with nutrition and hydration during our training and during our events, how to have the proper mindset for ultra endurance events, and of course, how to train for them, how to simulate, how to space the training, how to do some macro phases and micro cycles and so forth, strength training, core conditioning, chassis integrity, all those things. Today, we talk about how to train for the mountains while we're in a big city, right? Um, And step ups and all those things. That's everything we discuss here. And I think um, that's what it needs to be. It needs to figure all those factors into an ultra endurance discussion. It's got to be about the training. It's got to be about the strategy. It's got to be about the mindset. It's got to be about the psychology and the spirituality of what comes with ultra endurance. Many think it's just another sport, but there is something very unique about ultra endurance. And hopefully many of you are getting a chance to feel that, see that, observe that in ourselves, in yourselves, while you're in this ultra endurance space, that you notice things that you can't get in a gym or in a group exercise class or in an organized uh, workout. You've got to be out there for many hours on your own and things seem to happen there, unfold themselves and spring up from inside us. And I don't need to go into much detail on what those are because many of you have different experiences and your own experiences, but it's definitely unique and it's not compared to any other athletic endeavor and sport in the world. Ultra endurance athletics has a whole different category and that is the spiritual aspect and that primal part of us that comes alive with that and all the things it fires while we're doing what we're doing. So yeah, this week on the Weekly Word Podcast, it's just a variety of emails. I talk a little bit how to train versus exercise. I always talk a lot about how to train versus exercise. And I talk about the struggle and how hard this needs to be and why it needs to be that hard and why it's meaningful to us. So, and, you know, I talk about all kinds of different topics along the way. I have a sunny update and I have many more sunny updates. And that'll actually come up in episode 128 as well. So, all right. Well, enjoy this week's episode 127. And um, yeah, I'll talk to you at the end. 
So the Coast Ride 2020. So what a great group. What a fun event. What a unique experience to have that four or five days of taking new faces and old faces, experienced riders, newer riders um, down the coast of California. And in my format, every other year, I only go to LA. This year, we only went to Santa Monica. We stop at our usual hotel, the Georgian, in uh, Santa Monica, right across from the pier. And we start in Marin County, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, because part of that experience is that you want to be able to ride over the Golden Gate Bridge on day one as the sun is rising over San Francisco. And once again, we had that. And 2020 was indicative to many years we've had on the coast ride, and that is it's raining cats and dogs the day before, dumping. We're talking major winter storm in the Bay Area, meaning that that's a lot of rain. That means a lot of snow up in the mountains, but for us, being so close to the ocean always means rain, temperatures in the upper 40s, low 50s, just cold, damp, and miserable. And so, yeah, we um, were lucky in that on Friday morning, January 17th, quickly the ground fog that had created from the moisture started dissipating and the sun started peeking through no it was not a perfect bluebird day but it was enough that we had sunshine that we had blue skies with some clouds and we were able to enjoy a great first day down the coast into what is monterey peninsula and monterey in general Sorry about that phone call in the background. It's not something I control on the home line coming in. So, yeah, we had an opportunity to ride over the Golden Gate Bridge as the sun's peeking up over the hills and over, uh, the, over the East Bay Hills and San Francisco. 42 riders started with us. We always have a few people that do day one only or do day two or ride with us from the city for a certain amount and then turn around. So 42 riders started and off we went down the coast and we had an all-star team of people um, joining us with regards to SAG support, uh, transporting gear and bags and minivans full of fuel and hydration and day bags for people where they might want to shed some warm layers or add some warm layers or given if there's rain, put on rain jackets, take off rain jackets. That's sort of how the coast ride goes. It's pretty um, simple in its format. There's not fancy lunches along the way. It's not done in a very um, fancy format. It's just um, a variety of SAG vehicles in different spots along the ride that have neutral support, as we call it. Some tools and some pumps and some spare wheat tires and tubes and basic mechanical stuff, a variety of food and drink that we've purchased and from there, and in this case, of course, Cliff Bar, <laughs> I should say that, um, as they were generous enough to supply the usual goods for the coast ride. And then uh, we had uh, bananas and apples and peanut butter and bagels, you know, simple things that you can quickly digest while you're on your bike or with a short stop on the coast ride. And so that's how it works. That's the format. And we ride about the first day was 123 miles. 
The second day was 134 miles, each with about five to 8,000 feet of climbing per day, so no joke, some seriously long endurance days. And given that it's January, it's also something to keep in mind that, you know, our daylight is basically from 7.15, 7.30 in the morning until 4.35 at night. So in order to get in that type of climbing and cycling distance, you basically have <clears throat> just under 10 hours. Now you might say, well, 12 miles an hour, that's not a lot. Yeah, but when you count in stops for SAG, a variety of those, and you got to fuel yourself, and yeah, it's still 10 hours of cycling. And then also with the climbing, and also with uh, going through the city of San Francisco where you're not in a steady, and riding at any type of steady pace, it gets tight. You are out there all day. You are out there from pedal push at 7.30 in the morning, continuously basically till 4.35 at night in the afternoon. And, you know, colder temperatures, difficult terrain, all that, plus a lunch stop where you're fueling up or you're dealing with stuff, bathroom stops, so forth. It becomes a day of riding steady 16 to 17 miles an hour all day long. And that is an ultra endurance event, right? You're doing something steady from sunrise to sunset. And what makes it even more an ultra endurance event is that you wake up the next day and do it again. And the next day, do it again. And the final day, do it again. And on odd years, you do it a fifth day again from LA to San Diego. So that's the coast ride. And that's how it works. And again, it was a rewarding experience for me, just like the 29029 events, that I was able to have a direct influence and take part in directly in a few people having their first true ultra endurance experiences. I had an athlete along. She had never done more than 66 miles on her bike. And then she did her first day 122 miles on her bike. So, and she did not necessarily train, obviously, for this. And I ask a lot of my athletes to not be trained for this. It's not an event. The coast riding is experience. It's a durability. It's a mindset. It is truly an ultra endurance event. You're pushing yourself beyond the limits of what you thought you could do, which for her was 66 miles was her limit before. So she basically almost doubled it that day. And, you know, her first 75 mile ride, her first 80 mile ride, her first 90 mile ride, her first century, all that happened. Her first Ironman distance, all that happened on day one. And so being able to talk with her and ride with her and go through this with her was a enjoyable experience. I love that stuff because it allows me to show others, to bring about in others that they are fully capable of way more than they thought they could and that you don't necessarily need to be perfectly prepared for it that you can overcome, that you can figure it out, that you can stick to a certain basic few needs, fueling and hydration, and of course, comfort in the saddle and things like that. Um, and then you can do stuff and pacing, excuse me, pacing is very important, not starting too fast, because then no, you will not all of a sudden double your um, furthest distance ever. And then seeing within that, like if I let go, 
If I just ride, if I don't have expectations, if I just stay in the moment, enjoy this beautiful terrain and the ocean and the beaches and the waves and the surf and the cliffs and the mountains and the villages, if I just embrace all that and take all that in, the miles just happen. And day by day, she got stronger and her familiarity with a hundred mile ride her intimidation with a hundred mile ride is basically gone she knows now she can and now it's a question as she's getting ready for her first Ironman of um, how she will do it faster better stronger fitter so that then of course she can run a marathon on the back end of it but again that's an example of the experience of the coast drive and doing things that you've never done before. So you might say, well, why do you want them not coming in um, fit for it? Well, because of exactly that. It's learning to overcome despite not having prepared and being in the right fitness space for it. Otherwise, it's just another training weekend where you're going longer three, four days in a row and have support. So it almost makes it easier since that's your singular focus. You have nowhere else to be. This is what you signed up for. You're on the coast. You're in hotels every night. There's no Wi-Fi or um, cell access for a lot of the stretch. So you just let go and do the days. But part of the experience, part of the overcoming, part of the growth Part of the human potential of this all is exactly that. Your ability to do things despite not being prepared for it and letting go, resigning to the day, taking care of yourself to ensure that you will get the day done, right? That constant internal battle. Can I? I really don't want to. I'm uncomfortable, but let me just keep going. That internal conversation is basically ultra endurance. There's not an ultra endurance event I've done where I don't sit there. And even on the coast ride, I was like, oh, here we go again, right? I'm, I'm very familiar with it, but I'm uncomfortable. I'm moving slow. This, I'm not fit for it. I'm, in, I'm not enjoying it to, all right, just keep riding. See how you are in half an hour. Half an hour later, you're fine. You're just sort of enjoying it and you're letting go. Even this athlete said to me, when I let go of my ego, of my expectations, of my internal story, of how I wanted this to go, it became way easier and I enjoyed it so much more. And the miles just started ticking away versus when we're in our story, in our narrative, in our expectations, in our justification of what and how and why. That's when we start having the negative um, self-chatter. That voice, that story inside of brings up things that are deep inside of us. And so that's all part of the coach drive. That's all part of the experience. Now, I, of course, talked about this one athlete as my example, but there are plenty. There were many athletes on this trip, on this experience, on this adventure that have not done these distances and felt this sort of steady in it and letting go and embracing the experience. And so that was the feedback for many. The glow of the coast ride lasts for many days because you realize you are in a special place. You were in a place where you just let go and allowed your body to just do the work and it allows your mind and your senses to flourish, to explode, to grow. And that's the fun part too, because you get to a point where you realize this. You're like, wow, where have I been? 
I just wrote another two, three hours and they just sort of rattled off. Of course, there's difficult terrain. You're climbing and descending and cycling is a little bit different because you do have to pay a little bit more attention. You can't just completely zone out. But time definitely moves differently when that's all you have to do all day. And let's say you're on Highway 1, Big Sur, on beautiful rugged coastline and beaches and waves crashing and seals and whales and dolphins and sea lions and Hirsch Castle and San Simeon and all these stimuli that allow you to sort of also take in the day differently and you go to bed at night you're physically exhausted but you're also mentally so stimulated and had such an amazing day without the noise and the pace and the um, inputs from our usual rhythm of our days when we're home in society in our norms in our pressures in our responsibilities that again that's all part of the experience and that that's why I enjoy the coast ride people have asked me did it, why, if, or, or actually, I had somebody specifically ask me before this coast ride, you know, do you enjoy doing this? It seems like a lot of responsibility, a lot of work, and so forth. And I did struggle with the answer to that. But it's not about my enjoyment, it's about m- me seeing the enjoyment and the experience and the smiles and the joy in others that at the end gives me enjoyment. If I were looking for enjoyment, I would be, you know, doing this, whether on the front end, because I sweep on the coast ride. I'm the last rider, so I start later and make sure the entire group is in front of me with the SAG vehicles and supported and taken care of so that I know nobody is lost or confused or out there or not sure of where to go. Um, They do have GPX files and know where to go and have computers and have maps and we have phones and stuff. But still, just knowing that the group is ahead of me. So I ride at a very aerobic zone one pace, which is so good for me in January of the year. But as many of you know, riding at zone one is also fatiguing on the body. It's achy. You're not going strong enough, hard enough in order to sort of hit that sweet spot to get the miles and the engine firing the same way and the the, um, glycogen response. And so you're just in this super fat burning stage of, again, I had to let go. I had to sort of say, experience the moment, experience the day. This is exactly what you were you knew to expect. Now maximize this time. Maximize the small chain ring, maximize the cadence, maximize your aerobic engine uptake and growth and absorption, maximize your stimulus and input and eyes and beauty and connecting with others while riding and thinking about things in your head. I had a time on the coast ride in order to sort of work through my 2020 goals of work and athletically. I had to listen to a great book, Hiking with Nietzsche, um, on the coast ride, which was very um, apropos because here we are eight to 10 hours in such beautiful rugged terrain and sort of just um, listening to a book about a guy um, with uh, hiking the the, the um, trails and the mountain passes in the locations in Switzerland that Nietzsche so f- often frequented or was a 
resident in and wrote a lot of his books and his thinking and why and nature and open space and allowing the subconscious to come alive and the ego to let go and why he did those big hikes and climbs in the Alps and this guy emulating them or repeating them and finding his own peace and interesting book. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the coast ride and that's sort of how it unfolds. Um, People all had their own experiences that they take with it. Um, there's all kinds of characters on the road. There's those that who talk a lot and are loud and just want to sort of be all over the place. And then there's all those that are super quiet and taking it all in. Um, there's those that are experienced. They've done five or six or eight coast rides with me and they're strong riders. And there's others who are brand new. And um, there were those who didn't finish the coast ride, who didn't complete one day, let alone any of the four days. Um, and there was a humbling experience for some of them and understanding like, wow, this is what ultra endurance cycling or events are like and the discomfort and the difficulty and the lack of fitness and letting go of that and just finding a space a little space a little wedge opening that you can actually say i'll stay right here at this effort for as long as i can ever so gently and if that gets me to mile 95 i'll cross that bridge when i get to it and then think about the remaining 30 right things like that um, and even if there's SAG support, I'll get in a van. Things like that to consider as I'm sort of putting forth my long days. And for this guy, his first ever really long days. He's run a marathon, he's done a half Ironman, but he's never sat on his bike for 10 hours a day, let alone many days in a row. And so it was an eye-opening experience. And for somebody like him, the same thing. I want him to have a little taste an idea of what ultra endurance is and what it could mean to him. He's a young guy. He's in his 20s, his early 20s. There's so much to experience still, but this is so on the far end of what he's ever experienced. And being a weaker athlete amongst women and men who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s doing this coast ride, it's, yeah, it's a big, big surprise. Like, oh my gosh, I can't make it to 75, 80 miles. And this 62-year-old woman is doing her, you know, 115th mile. And she's ahead of me. And she's in happy spirits. And she's not trained either in being coming into this like it's an event and being ready for it. And just that dichotomy and just seeing those differences, that's the coast ride. And it, it's not unique to this year. I have this every year. I have different characters and personalities and experiences and people walk away with different things. I had people along who didn't know how to change a flat tire, right? So I'm stuck trying to explain that to them. And then after a couple of days, also being quite serious with them in a scolding way where it's like, listen, you cannot be out here on a hundred and plus mile ride in the middle of nowhere and not know how to change your tire. Like go to your room and figure this out because you're pulling resources off the road of a SAG vehicle for you to just get picked up and have somebody change your flat. It's not that type of ride. Now there's definitely rides like that where with the price included is a SAG vehicle that does all that for you. But my coast ride is not that. My coast ride is about a hundred bucks a day. Yeah, 
100 bucks a day. That includes a staff of four. That includes four minivans and van rentals. That includes paying for those people and their gas and their travel and all the food and the hydration and the SAG supplies and hotel rooms and their meals for five people, right, including me. Um, all that. And that means it's, it's a lot of overhead and logistical structure in place and also paying their time, right? They should get paid salary for that, not salary, but um, being paid for their time. So you divide that, it's, it's a lot of money, but it's a cost, um, break-even cost event. I don't look to make money on the coast ride. I look to have others experience this adventure, this event. And again, that's the, 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 um, intent of the coast ride and that's also the how to describe it uh, uh the the philosophy the feel of the coast ride it's not some easy glamorous cushy stay in nice hotels have nice meals be very supported event it is sort of spartan it's hard it's difficult terrain and it's do it day after day after day and we'll provide the scaffolding the infrastructure for you to be successful but it requires you to think it requires you to pay attention it requires you to be present and know what your body needs and how to learn to get through 10 hours a day of cycling four days in a row the last day isn't that long the last day is 100 miles so <clears throat> and it's a lot flatter so it goes a lot quicker but the other days for sure um it's challenging and remember because you come into the days beat up by the first two days even the 118 mile third day with also about five six thousand feet of climbing um while it's shorter, right, you know, you're about 10 miles shorter than the first two days um, on average, is that you're still, you're fatigued, you're achy, you're, you're uncomfortable in the saddle, and you're, you're fatigued mentally too for another eight to 10 hour day of sitting there. Like one day is fine. Almost anybody can do one day, but backing it up with another day and another day and another day and another day, that's the challenge, right? Um, even in the tour, they don't do 125 mile days, two, three days in a row. I mean, of course, their pace is higher and they're, they're climbing a lot more. They're focusing. I'm not trying to do the same thing, but those are big distances is what I'm saying. Way further than tour stages. And our 134 mile day is basically longer than almost any tour stage. So to keep that in mind, um, and they're getting massages, and they're getting body care, and they're getting fed, and they're getting everything covered, and they're off their legs immediately post the co uh, post finish line, and they're warm, and it's summer, and they're fit. So different experience again, and different way to look at it. This is overcoming. It is truly overcoming. It is difficult, and that's the joy of the coach ride. That's what I look forward to with. Um, riders and knowing that when they're done and they're safe and they're off the road and I ask them how their experience was, that's where it is, right? Um, that's the beauty of it. And that was the coast ride. I mean, it was a little bit of self-exploration for me too and spending time with my goals and understanding what I want to do in 2020 with 
this business, this coaching business called AIMP. And I feel pretty good about having clarified that into some four specific bullet points. But again, I needed to sit there with it and just allow it to marinate and clarity to come from it. And that was the coach drive for me. And um, it's part of experiencing ultra endurance also for me because it allows me and I look for it to be out there for many hours and find things and things pop into my mind that I usually don't get a chance to when I'm home. And even a two, three hour run isn't the same as five, six, seven, eight hours on your bike. Or a two, three hour run isn't the same as a five, six hour run, obviously, duh. But my point is, it takes longer and longer to let the body sort of unfold, let the mind, the layers wash away, the fog burn off of day-to-day narrative and constructs and get to a place where you're just thinking freely, openly. Uh, The subconscious has an expression and can communicate. That happens after many hours. And I know many people experience that on the coast ride of this year. So you might ask, well, that sounds awesome. Can I do that? I think almost anybody can do it. And that's the fun of the coast ride too, is that because of the sport and because of the SAG and because of the quality of people that are working it, um, everybody feels like they're safe and they feel as though they're able to have an opportunity to do the entire day. That's the fun too. So yeah, that's uh, that's the coast ride. It wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Um, I was able to sort of relax into it. And then the days just sort of unfolded. I didn't need fitness. It was more just like I said, the letting go. I was a little worried going in, but it all worked out just great. And the weather worked out great. The people worked out great. The camaraderie worked out great. Getting to know new people worked out great. People brought past athletes, brought friends, new athletes brought friends. Um, So, you know, 42 down the coast, I think a total of 36 finished. Some turned off in Santa Barbara just because they had to get back to work after three days um, or had other commitments. Some just joined the first day or two. Um, some went home. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was the Coast Ride 2020. I hope it gives you a good picture. Now I'll have my usual Coast Ride again next January where we'll go to San Diego. It's an odd year. We'll go five days. but um, And then my Oregon Coast Ride, because it's newer, um, I would no way be able to carry 42 riders down there. I'm going to maximize that at 12 experienced riders because again um, Oregon's even uh, a different animal and the reason Oregon is a different animal is because the days are more it's a seven-day coast ride it's a bigger distance the terrain is a little bit more rugged exposed um, desolate meaning I know every inch of this California coast ride every single inch I've done it 35 36 maybe even 40 times I don't know because there's been many years where I've done it two or three times um but the uh, and so there's bigger cities and towns and the distances between towns and support and um 
services or emergencies are available and I would be able to quickly deal with anything that happens on the road because I know all the ins and outs of support roads and where hospitals are and hotels and cities and where to get support and SAG and fluids and fuel in case a SAG vehicle isn't able to and they're stuck taking care of somebody who had a major mechanical so I could bring a group through and get them their water and fuel because I know of the next town and we'd all coordinate there and the logistics are all in place and I've done it enough that I can just close my eyes and see the entire coast. Oregon is different. It's more spread out. It's more desolate. It's a little bit more rugged in regards to not necessarily big differences in elevation gain. There are differences, but it's more days in a row again, right? And so if you think how we feel after three, four days of six, seven, eight, nine hours in the saddle, just think after four, five days and the increased likelihood of things going wrong because the body's fatigued or things slowing down or needs changing um, and the body just resisting becomes higher likelihood on the Oregon Coast Ride. The beauty of the Oregon Coast Ride, because it's going to be late September, we have an entire season and summer of training in our legs. So most people will come in quite fit and therefore be able to allow their fitness to carry them smoother in a less taxing way over that more rugged, difficult, desolate terrain. But again, I'm only going to take 12 people because of that, because I'm not that familiar with it. It's harder. It's desolate. It's also more rugged. And when I say more rugged, it's logging communities from that are no longer logging communities because big corporations have taken over those logging communities and uh, fishing villages. So there's a depressed economy along that Oregon coast. And not in a negative way, it's just a different mentality, a different place, a different sort of subculture. People are struggling along that coast in, in a lot of ways because of the lack of logging jobs and fishing jobs. So for a bunch of cyclists to come through in spandex and bright colors and $10,000 bikes, um, again, I would want there to be a more cared uh, approach and tight-knit group and all of us sort of riding in a smaller um, distance um, apart aspect and working our way down the coast like that. So. Yeah, so that'll be the Oregon Coast Ride, and uh, that's seven days. You know, Portland to San Francisco is a is a pretty big stretch, and it's a pretty long stretch. I mean, we're talking 800 miles, 800 plus miles of solid, solid, difficult terrain. But again, adventure, again, unknown, Ad again, um, difficult days, many days in a row. Again, sort of Spartan approach. Now, of course, we have nice dinners because we find a, ho a good restaurant in that town that we're staying in. And many of the towns on the coast of Oregon do have some aspects of um, a vibrant economy, like let's say Bandon Dunes with their golf community or Newport with its own fishing and proximity to Portland and uh, microbrew community and sort of also tourism with regards to Oregonians coming to the coast and, and surfing, you know. So there's definitely that. But again, the days are long. The days are difficult. The, the course is difficult. The directions are difficult. <laughs> and uh, and it's rugged. The, 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 
The environment and the weather is also a factor. It's just, again, it's more desolate and a rugged coast. So I hope uh, to report back in September on what a adventure, truly an adventure that was. The California Coast Ride is so predictable for me and so familiar, and I know the outcome of every day. Oregon is adventure still for me. Um, having done it last year, it was an amazing experience and it was just sort, sort of awe-inspiring because there were so many beautiful new roads and angles and that time of year was just gorgeous. So, I th and I'm excited to have that adventure lying ahead um, for this year. So those are the coast rides. All right. All right. I also have a couple of updates that I wanted to dive into this week. Um, um, these come mainly from, let's say, uh, Training Peaks updates or emails that I get or insights from feedback from the athletes on how their training's going. And one of the first ones I want to talk about is Apple Watches. So many athletes are struggling or frustrated with Apple Watches just because of the way it's not recording heart rate reliably and it's not really a value value add when it comes to a training tool. And again, let's keep in mind what the Apple Watch was designed for. I mean, I think it's the coolest thing too for all the different things it does, but it's not for training. It's for exercising. And the people using an Apple Watch are not endurance high level endurance athletes and many of you listening to this are looking to be athletes you have you have the athletes mindset meaning your approach and the way you go about your training and how you how serious you take your training not in hours committed but just that you the 45 minutes a day you spend on training you take seriously you have intention you have clarity you have purpose you have desired outcomes, you have future goals, you have a path and a training methodology that you'd like to apply, you have a prescription, you have um, prepared for the in the best possible way for your training day, whether it's that you know where you're going to execute the training or the intervals or how you're going to do them and how you want to feel about them, all that is part of the athlete's mindset. You've fueled, you've hydrated, and here you are, ready to go. Everything is good. The gear is good. Your body is good. The weather is good. The terrain and how you want to execute is good. You set it all up, and then you're wearing an Apple Watch. You're doing an activity where you're not getting the reliable data. You've been the reliable source so far. You've done everything needed to take this seriously and do it right. And then here you are, you have an Apple Watch that isn't giving you the proper heart rate or at least valuable data. And don't get me wrong, I'm not looking for every workout to be data-driven. Absolutely not. And I, I actually would like to see less data-driven and more feel And we talk about that here on the podcast. But at the end of the day, the Apple Watch was designed for the masses, for a bigger community. And that bigger community isn't doing the training that we're doing with the intention, the focus, the clarity, with the prescription, the desired outcomes that we need and the specificity. And so exercising versus training, right? And it's that simple. There is just not that reliability yet. There's just not that value and reliability yet when it comes to light sensors on our skin, on our wrist, and getting the proper heart rate for a longer period of time, reliable input for a 10, 15, 20, 30-minute interval, 7-minute interval, 1-mile repeats, whatever it is. 
And so keep that in mind. I cannot recommend more. I highly ask most of my athletes and I push them all to have a heart rate strap. It just works better. It's designed to do one thing. Measure your heart rate at a place where it's getting good data signals, where some sweat and some input is right there. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty close to your heart and it's reliable and it's got many, many, many years since the 70s and early 80s of just being used as a heart rate strap. And no, again, I understand for many people it's uncomfortable. For women, it's a pain in the you-know-what all the time to wear that thing. And it chafes and it cuts and it's not ideal. I get that. And you don't need to do it all the time. But when we do need the data, when we do want some sort of insight on how this all goes, then those few times we want that input. We want that reliability. And it's a shame that, let's say, here you are. As a woman, it's annoying to wear that strap and a sports bra or even the bras that they have where you can put the strap in the bra. I mean, it's fine. They're trying. It's just not that comfortable. It rubs and chafes and it's not ideal. I get it. So here you are. You actually have committed to doing these intervals or getting this test day done or doing your weekly sort of measurement of how you're doing with regards to heart rate and pace or heart rate and wattage or heart rate and swim pace or whatever it is. And you're set up, you're primed, you've done everything you needed to do. You're excited to do it, to measure your progress, to measure your outcome, to measure your results. And you've got a shitty result data. Right? You got bad data so that you did the workout, you prepared for it, you tried to execute it. Now you're distracted. You notice the data isn't good. Now you're not even having a good workout, let alone good data, because you're distracted because you want the data. So get it right. Use a real watch, whether that's a Garmin, whether that's a Koros, whether that's a Sunto, whether that's a, a, a Polar with a heart rate strap and wear it for when you need to. The rest of the time where data isn't that important or you have other inputs or you're going on feel or you don't necessarily need every single moment of data and you want heart rate but you get the overall trend from the Apple Watch, fine. But guess what? Now that you own that Garmin with a strap or that Sunto with a strap or that Koros with a strap, whatever it is, you know, you're going to be able to, you have a better watch for it. And again, I love Apple. I love Apple and their products. I've been using it for years. Apple Watch is for exercising. It's not for training. All right, more updates. So I wanted to give everybody a Sunny update. Sunny, in the meantime, had his marathon. And despite the setbacks, his continuous um training approach whereby he did consistently more steady volume in a somewhat more organized fashion than he's ever done before and overcoming some niggles and difficulties and approaching injury and time sensitivity with being able to get this done and realizing this is all a lot more than he had envisioned prior or knew or understood prior Sonny still did a 325 first ever marathon. 325. Uh, Amazing job in his first one. Super proud of that he persevered like that. He 
didn't positive split by a lot. He paced it well. He was smart about his approach. He fueled, he hydrated, he learned, of course, a ton of that day. And to me, and I told him, that is huge success in your first marathon, doing a 325 in Mumbai and sort of understanding this first sort of walkthrough um, of endurance training and coming out of it healthy, non-injured with a positive, um, actually quite good result is all you can ask for. And of course, we've talked about the sub three stuff and his desire to be an elite marathoner right off the bat. And he thought he could, again, doesn't mean he can't, but we have to sort of take who we are in the process and continue to drive forward on our path to our outcomes. Now, could he have possibly be one of those people who just does their first marathon and runs a sub three? Absolutely. There's a, there's totally a chance. And we go along that path until the athlete comes to the learning and growth themselves to realize it's not going to be realistic or I'm endangering my um, health, i.e. injury, um, by pushing too hard here on my first one. This is a path. This is a long-term um, growth, and I don't plan to deviate from this lifestyle and from this goal for long. So therefore, my first venture along the way, being a 325 in this example, is phenomenal. It validates the training. It validates the ability. It validates that you can do it. It validates reality, quite honestly. What I mean by that, it validates that, listen, in a first run-up where I sort of just was learning along the way how to do this, and there's probably so much low-hanging fruit that he can pick up along the way to make him a 310 runner, right? 30 seconds per mile faster for his next time, and gradually sort of pick up the easy um, improvements and efficiencies and aha moments and understanding then that validates that he does have a legitimate goal of a three-hour marathon, right? Um, pick that up. Now you're in the 310, 312 range. Now you're talking. Now you continue to prove, improve by training smarter, more effectively, better recovery, better nutrition, better strength, better mental game. All those things will quickly tie into a better outcome. And the three-hour marathon for him, I would say to him as my athlete, um, is not unrealistic. Continue to drive, continue to push, continue to explore, continue to grow, to continue to learn about your body and how it responds and reacts. Continue to see how you can navigate your way through the training of this to continue on this path of becoming a three-hour marathoner. And then once you are there, whether that's in two marathons or the next marathon or in four marathons, things will have presented have been presented to you, life will have presented to you what you want to do with it. It will come. It will come. It will either say, this has been a lot and I can barely do this and balance this and still follow my passions of, let's say, acting or different things like that. Well, then you know. But if it also is what makes your day happy, if it is your passion, if it does fire your curiosity and you do feel great, your best self every day when you're doing this, then maybe you want to run more, do different running events, maybe even get faster at the marathon. We don't know. But 
I found that often athletes look for the answers too early on what athletics and sports and endurance and ultra endurance events could be for them. It'll come. It'll happen. Allow it to happen. Allow your body and your mind and your spirit to work with each other as your new self presents itself the further you go down this journey, right? You're never going to be the same person in six months from now than you are now because of the experiences of who you've become in your training, in your learning, in your growth, in your observation of yourself. And then your perspective and view of what you want to do and what makes you happy and what you're enjoying is already different, which will then present to you what you continue want to pursue or not pursue. Right, that beautiful Heraclitus quote of um, you never cross the same river twice because A, the river is not the same and you are not the same. So the water is different, who you've become crossing through the water, it's different water passing through when you go to cross back through the river. And there's so much growth. There's always the growth. So having expectations of who will be on the other side of that river bank on the other side of excuse me of that river is unrealistic you're going to be a different person and sunny was a great example for that so what's next for sunny i don't know i don't know um we had a short conversation post his race i was on the coast ride so um but we'll see We'll see what he has in mind. Um, again, I was consulting him, helping him just sort of on the side. And again, there's another opportunity. We didn't really train. I was just giving him ideas and inputs and guidance for how we could best train, given that he's so new at running for his first marathon and staying injury-free and seeing how this all works. But now, who knows? Now, who knows what he can do and having grown from that learning. So... I'm excited to see how he'll kick out of this in a few months and years. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is I put a weekly swim out there on Instagram. I'm not sure how many of you see that, but it's pretty much every Tuesday. So if you're looking for swims and some ideas of what to swim or you have a swim workout that you would want to emulate, follow, um, complete, feel good about every week, I put one out there. Um, and it's the swimming I'm doing as I'm preparing A for swim run Catalina and B for my 21 mile swim. So it gives you a sense of some of the longer workouts that I do that I also prescribe. And those will get longer over the next few weeks and so forth to, so that you can see sort of how this will all work. Um, I am no longer swimming Catalina to LA. I didn't have enough um, friends join me. And again, for me, doing ultra endurance events at this point is about uh, where, where it's not a race, right? Where it's not an organized event is about camaraderie and sharing the experience and adventures with others. And with Catalina, because of the water temperature and the time of year that people weren't quite that fit, I didn't have enough takers. I only had one taker <laughs> and he was sort of on the fence too. Um, so I said, well, I don't need to do that alone. So it looks like now it's going to be a Tahoe crossing. The length of Tahoe is 21 miles. Um, no big fish. <laughs> and it uh, looks like that'll be sometime in early July. And there's a variety of guys already doing it. And I'm jumping on their sort of group. 
I'll obviously have my own support crew and my own boats and kayaks and so forth. But the fact that there's a group of us training for the same window should make that quite fun. Um, one guy's looking to do it around July 10th. I will probably do it a few days earlier based off the weather and the conditions. Again, I'm not looking for any type of record. I'm not looking for any type of um, world-class time. I just want to do something that's very uncomfortable for me. And swimming 21 miles or 10 hours um, is new to me. Um, uh, the longest I swam is a 10K. Competitively, sure, I was trying to do that fast. But that's six miles. That's like not even a third. So um, this will be a fun adventure. And as I progress through the spring, those swims will come longer. Those open water swims will be more documented on Instagram. And yeah, I look forward to sharing with all of you my um, uh, 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 and entering uncharted territory with regards to ultra endurance swimming. And um, yeah, if any of you have questions about it or are curious about how I'm going about it, um, A, you can follow along there, but B, you could also send me an email or a text or whatever on how, um, if whatever questions you have. But that's that's the first after swim run Catalina. That's the next event. And then the back end of the summer, um, I got into a 100-mile run there, so I'll be doing that. And then I have my... A variety of camps and events and running camp and then i have the 29029 events so i'll be plenty busy this year but anyway with that being said besides the weekly swim on instagram i've also started that step training with regards to swimming because i have such a long-term outlook with regards to the swimming out outcome um and building the volume this is a great spot to apply the step training I talked about in past episodes. And in this case, it's great with intervals. So for example, some of you, whether you've followed along on Instagram with regards to the swim and the workouts, might have seen that I could swim those intervals faster. Whether that's 120 pace, I know, it is what it is, I'm a swimmer. 120 push off or even 130 push off, depending on what the desired outcome of the interval of the set is. Um, can I swim faster? Yes, but again, uh, based on the step, I want to go through a four week, five week, six week phase where I could swim a faster interval and I could allow myself less rest, but I want to do it technically sound. I want to do it with good form, good stroke, good turns, good drill technique, good reach, good kick good oxygen consumption, all that, until that feels really controlled, really good, really too easy, then I'll step up in the effort level, in the less rest level, to the next level. And again, try to make those what was 110s, uh, excuse me, what was 120s down to 115s. Now, at that point, in six weeks from now, could I do 110s and 105s? Of course. But... I want to do five seconds faster on typical intervals, but more control, more being able to make subtle adjustments in my stroke and my reach and my kick and my turns and my breathing pattern that makes me slightly faster or slightly slower to continuously observe how I'm doing said activity while not taxing myself too much but still being on an interval, being on a step pattern where it's a controllable, um, repeatable outcome. And similar to 
whether that's running or cycling, could you do a certain wattage? Yes, but you choose to do, let's say, 10% less wattage, better cadence, more relaxed posture, better breathing, more just, it's taxing you less, you are sweating less, you're less out of breath, you can focus on your pedal stroke, you can focus on your weight on your hands and the body and how you're sitting on the saddle, you can focus on your sweep of the pedal stroke, you can focus on how you're coming over your pedal stroke and coming from what I call uh, 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock on your pedal stroke, all those things to refine your pedal stroke, to make you stronger for when the time comes down the road when we need that those circles to be powerful effective and less taxing right because in ultra endurance everything we're doing is about less taxing less cost i constantly say and i've been through these experiences with athletes anybody can do something for a short period of time you can mask endurance and fitness for a short period of time by just overcoming willpower and pure brute force but over time your efficiency, your endurance, your durability will come forward. And the longer you go, the more that differential is and the more it highlights who's fit, who's taking care of themselves, who's fueled, who's hydrated, who's regenerated, who's slept well, who's recovered right, who paid attention, whose technique is sound for efficient movements to go further using less energy, that will play, play out better right? And so that's where I'm currently at with the step training. Um, I'm not doing too much step training for the running currently, just because um, swim runs late February in about a month. And so there's other focus right now with regards to the desired outcome on March 1, I think it is. So that's that uh, update. Um, the other update is LT, lactate threshold. Uh, lactate threshold. A lot of athletes are confused about lactate threshold, not because of what it means in um, regards to zones. I'm talking about an input I had the other day from an athlete, which I thought it was important to share, and that is lactate threshold is not an absolute value. It's a range. It's a guide. So even the ones that you're doing, the heart rate minus so-and-so test, the minus your age and years of experience, or even the ones that you are testing in a lab, um, or you're doing a field test, or you're doing a um, one hour best effort test, or a 30 minute best effort test, however the many ways people calculate and go about achieving a, an LT number that let's say is a valid number. It's not an absolute number. And what I mean by that is, let's say in running, it's seven minute miles, or in cycling, it's 240 watts, or whatever it is, whether that's good or bad, it's not the point. The point is, it's not 240.00. It's a range. Your LT, your lactate threshold, your anaerobic threshold, oftentimes as LT, um, is a, a, a guide. It's using the formula in a way that we use that number, but it's designed that it's a range. So if I say to my athlete, um, let's use your LT, and let's say that number would be 240. Well, the athlete is still at LT in two, at 244 watts or in 238 watts. Again, because the body doesn't go that exact in its numbers. There's too many other influences and things that tie into it. So there's no absolute 240.00. And anything above that, you're going too hard and too below that too easy. So understand that it's a range. 
It's not a fixed data point. And so if you start looking at it from that perspective, as you athlete are looking at your own zones and numbers, keep that in mind with all your zones and all your numbers, they're ranges. Um, and there's, there's small bubbles in which you can start using the data from, but try to stay away from something too absolute and specific. What else is there? Um, did that, did that, got through that. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is Telluride Running Camp. I've gotten a few questions and inquiries and people emailing me about Telluride. Telluride is a very difficult place because it's at 9,000 feet. The runs will be at 10,000 or above. And so it will be by invite only. I want people to know that. Um, it, if it's only five or six people that come, that's fine. But the challenge here is it's a training camp, specific training camp um, for ultra runners who are getting ready for big mountain stuff or want some experience in big mountain stuff. The volume won't necessarily be that big. We'll run for three, four hours a day, maybe a five hour day because of some hiking. And in order to get to the proper trails and terrain and beauty and adventure, um, but it's also nutrition discussions. We'll be doing a bunch of mindset stuff and, you know, fun dinners and just overall a week or not a week, five days basically of focused, but fun, enjoyable, beautiful location, beautiful terrain, uh, running camp. We'll have drills. We'll talk about bounding. We'll go through um, how to run the hills, how to run the downhills how to do strength for the hills when you don't live in the mountains, um, things like that. But overall, just also hitting absolutely spectacular terrain in one of the most beautiful remote locations in the country. Telluride is not an easy place to get to. Not only do you find, by the time you're into Denver and have your car rent and get to Telluride, it's a full day of travel and you're in the middle of nowhere. But it is spectacular in its beauty. It's not a cheap spot either. So, and as usual with my camps, um, they are not free. Um, they're not based off of co cost like I do the coast rides, but um, I also am always super sensitive that it's not something that breaks the bank. I want you to have the experience, not do something that costs a lot of money and then therefore you're worried about um, the value from the money perspective. I want you to have the experience, the adventure, get to know new people, um, have friends and um, memories in this community of ultra endurance. And when I think of ultra endurance running, Telluride and the different loops and clover leaves that we can do out of it, it's not easy. Again, it's not, there's no flat running. <laughs> we got to go straight out of town up into the big mountains, but there is value in that. And there's some great opportunity. We'll do some one ways as well, where we'll um, get driven out to a spot and run back to town or vice versa, run out of town to a location and get picked up. So we're not spending all our times on out, out and backs, but overall I'm looking for six, maybe eight people of a wonderful week of training, of learning, of fun, of experiences, of absorbing nature and its beauty. And uh, yeah, prepping for 
big alpine, big mountain running events. So that's what Telluride is. And it looks to be July 11th to the 18th, that week. Now, I think the 11th is a Saturday. So um, I think we arrive Tuesday and we run Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Sunday evening, you're back at Denver to, to fly wherever you need to fly. So I think that's how it's looking to unfold. Right now, I'm focused on my Sonoma training camp. Um, so the infrastructure for that is almost in place. Um, so I can start doing, um, I have the manpower for it. I am about to rent the, the camp property in Sonoma for it, where um, we have a house a compound that will be hosting um, a pool and a hot tub and a general open area that we can do some talks and just chill out at after our day of training. And um, people will stay in hotels, but this will sort of be the launch point of our training every day or debrief day and a group dinner um, most nights and just sort of going over again, learning, community, um, all kinds of discussion. And again, uh, time to spend with athlete for me to spend time with athlete in order for them to really walk away from a training camp, whether that's Telluride or Sonoma, um, armed with a lot more knowledge and experience to go and effectively train better um, on their own. So that's what the training camps truly are about. They're about community, camaraderie, getting to know people, sharing experience of ultra endurance training in a beautiful location, Sonoma or Telluride, but also coming home armed with knowledge and support and a better idea and more um, experience to apply training more effectively for when you're home. Because that's the majority of our time. And that's where we want to spend um that's where we want to maximize our time. Sure, the training camps are nice, but the, it's not necessarily that's going to be such a huge boost in training. It's more about, okay, I walked out of there with the knowledge, the experience, and armed better to now train more effectively at home. So I think that's it when it comes to updates. Yeah, um, that's it. All right, I want to dive into some emails this week and catch up on some remaining inputs that I had, especially again, like I observe in training peaks or emails that I receive. So um, let me dive into something older here. Um, Hi, Chris, can you discuss the science behind breaking up a longer run over a 24 hour period? For example, the difference between running 40 miles in one session versus 30 on Saturday afternoon and 10 miles Sunday morning in a 24 hour period. With significant rest between the 30 and 10 mile run, how does the body still process that as running a continuous 40 miles? (laughs) How does breaking the distance up still benefit my long distance endurance training? Well, Andre, um, unless you are a sapiens that is familiar with running 40, 30, 25 plus miles at a time and you're that efficient at it, The fatigue remaining in your body after, let's say, 30 miles or 25 miles or 20 miles will not go away in 24, 48, or 72 hours. You have to be quite trained for even the body to absorb that in less than 72 hours, 20 miles, 25 miles. So if you're doing a 30-mile run, 
plus a 10 mile run, there is no real recovery. The recovery is basically glycogen stores and fueling and hydrating and a little bit of um, heart rate um, recovery, heart recovery. But mechanical fatigue and on the muscular structure and the muscles itself, there's not much recovery happening in that time. And so why do we do it, right? So why not just get 40 done? Well, because the outcome is to run good, clean miles, um, somewhat resembling good running form when we're that tired. And that's the whole premise of a lot of this ultra endurance stuff. Can you do more? Yeah, but if you're just slogging away, running with bad form, with niggles, achy, little bounce in your stride, little stride length, a little agility on the edge of bunking or hurting yourself or just tired and bad footing, all those things, they add up the further you go into your training run. So instead, give yourself a few hours off, um, freshen the mind, freshen the stores, um, and then go out and do another 10, 15, 20 clean. Exercise physiology as well as experience of 100-mile runners and longer show that this is the best um, way of training, most effective way of training. Not necessarily the best. I'm not always going to use that term, but effective way. One, because of avoiding injury. B, because of one, and then B. Two, because, um, again, the miles that you're running are good miles. Training is not about just getting the miles done. That's like people who train for a marathon who insist they have to run 20 plus miles in order to even do the, the, the marathon. No, why train bad miles? Why train difficult, not difficult, why train um, awkward injury prone miles? Instead, the body is definitely not recovered from 30 miles the next morning. Um, Instead, run those 10 miles faster, cleaner, lighter, more technically sound. And now you've gotten 40 miles in, in this example, in a matter of 24 hours. You can even do it less, right? You can do 30 miles early in the morning, 6 a.m. to let's say noon. Take six hours-ish to do a, um, a, a, a 50K as a training day, maybe even seven. So you're, let's say you're done at one. And then that afternoon or that evening, you run another 10, 90 minutes, let's say, or an hour or two hours, whatever it is. Um, and still in a matter of you know 18 hours, you got that time in. Again, the recovery is not happening in that short period of time. Um, basically, very few humans on this planet are fully recovered from anything longer than 20, 30 miles in less than 72 hours. And we're talking the Killian Journeys of the world, the Max Kings of the world, right? The Courtney Dowalters of the world. They're not recovering. So I think we're pretty safe in saying we're not recovering either. Um, and again, all those runners that I just mentioned, or cross-country, elite cross-country runners, or elite college runners, or elite Olympic runners, all the way from 10,000 meters to the marathon, they're breaking up their week into puzzle pieces. If you're a 10,000 meter runner, if you're a 10K runner at the Olympics, they're not running 10K barely ever in training. They're doing two, three, four, five K in the morning, two, three, four K in the evening, two, three, four, five, six, seven K in the in the next morning, two K in the evening, strength in the morning, 
another two, three, four K in the afternoon, they're breaking it up into multiple, multiple pieces in the week so that the overall load on the body remains pretty um, taxing. But again, no junk miles, all about quality miles. Because then when you rest, when you take some of the pieces out, then you can ask your body to do the 10K, to do whatever distances we're looking to do better, longer, more efficient, smoother, lighter, less taxing. And that's, again, the outcome. If you're doing a 50 mile or 100K or 100 miler, the difficult slogging miles are coming. But to prolong that out as far as possible so that you're running good form, good technique, uh, efficiently, as long as possible is the goal of the training. Now you might say, how come, but I need to learn to overcome and durability and so forth. Yeah, you can do that, but you can also do that by coming in fatigued from the, that long run the day before and going longer that one instead of 10, making that 15. Trust me, it'll get hard enough. If you do a Friday 20, a Saturday 30, and a Sunday 20, so now you just ran 70 miles in 36 hours, you're pretty much ready for a 100 miler. <laughs> and you can kick out of that having run them all clean, light, efficient, um, technically sound. And you can come out of that injury-free and recovered in a week or two. You're pretty good. You're, you're very well done for in your prep for a 100 miler or 100K, whatever it is. So... That's the reason for that. All right, I wanna dive into some emails this week and catch up on some remaining inputs that I had, especially again, like I observe in training peaks or emails that I receive. So um, let me dive into something older here. Um, Hi, Chris, can you discuss the science behind breaking up a longer run over a 24 hour period? For example, the difference between running 40 miles in one session versus 30 on Saturday afternoon and 10 miles Sunday morning in a 24-hour period. With significant rest between the 30 and 10-mile run, how does the body still process that as running a continuous 40 miles? (laughs) How does breaking the distance up still benefit my long-distance endurance training? Well, Andre, um, unless you are a sapiens that is familiar with running 40, 30, 25 plus miles at a time and you're that efficient at it, the fatigue remaining in your body after let's say 30 miles or 25 miles or 20 miles will not go away in 24, 48 or 72 hours. You have to be quite trained for even the body to absorb that in less than 72 hours, 20 miles, 25 miles. So if you're doing a 30 mile run, plus a 10 mile run, there is no real recovery. The recovery is basically glycogen stores and fueling and hydrating and a little bit of um, heart rate um, recovery, heart recovery. But mechanical fatigue and on the muscular structure and the muscles itself, there's not much recovery happening in that time. And so why do we do it, right? So why not just get 40 done? Well, because the outcome is to run good clean miles, um, somewhat resembling good running form when we're that tired. And that's the whole premise of a lot of this ultra endurance stuff. Can you do more? Yeah, but if you're just slogging away, running with bad form, with niggles, achy, 
a little bounce in your stride, little stride length, a little agility on the edge of bonking or hurting yourself or just tired and bad footing. All those things, they add up the further you go into your training run. So instead, give yourself a few hours off, um, freshen the mind, freshen the stores, um, and then go out and do another 10, 15, 20 clean. Exercise physiology, as well as experience of 100-mile runners and longer, show that this is the best um, way of training, most effective way of training. Not necessarily the best. I'm not always going to use that term, but effective way. One, because of avoiding injury. B, because of one, and then B. Two, because, um, again, the miles that you're running are good miles. Training is not about just getting the miles done. That's like people who train for a marathon who insist they have to run 20 plus miles in order to even do the, the, the marathon. No. Why train bad miles? Why train difficult, not difficult, why train um, awkward injury prone miles? Instead, the body is definitely not recovered from 30 miles the next morning. Um, instead, run those 10 miles faster, cleaner, lighter, more technically sound. And now you've gotten 40 miles in, in this example, in a matter of 24 hours. You can even do it less, right? You can do 30 miles early in the morning, 6 a.m. to let's say noon, take six hours-ish to do a, um, a, a, a 50K as a training day, maybe even seven. So you're, let's say you're done at one, and then that afternoon or that evening, you run another 10, 90 minutes, let's say, or an hour or two hours, whatever it is. Um, and still in a matter of you know 18 hours, you got that time in. Again, the recovery is not happening in that short period of time. Um, basically, very few humans on this planet are fully recovered from anything longer than 20, 30 miles in less than 72 hours. And we're talking the Killian Journeys of the world, the Max Kings of the world, right? The Courtney Dowalters of the world. They're not recovering. So I think we're pretty safe in saying we're not recovering either. Um, and again, all those runners that I just mentioned, or cross-country, elite cross-country runners, or elite college runners, or elite Olympic runners, all the way from 10,000 meters to the marathon, they're breaking up their week into puzzle pieces. If you're a 10,000 meter runner, if you're a 10K runner at the Olympics, they're not running 10K barely ever in training. They're doing two, three, four, five K in the morning, two, three, four K in the evening, two, three, four, five, six, seven K in the in the next morning, two K in the evening, strength in the morning, another two, three, four K in the afternoon. They're breaking it up into multiple, multiple pieces in the week so that the overall load on the body remains pretty um, taxing. But again, no junk miles. All about quality miles because then when you rest when you take some of the pieces out then you can ask your body to do the 10k to do whatever distances we're looking to do better longer more efficient smoother lighter less taxing and that's again the outcome if you're doing a 50 mile or 100k or 100 miler the difficult slogging miles are coming 
but to prolong that out as far as possible so that you're running good form, good technique, uh, efficiently, as long as possible is the goal of the training. Now you might say, how come, but I need to learn to overcome and durability and so forth. Yeah, you can do that, but you can also do that by coming in fatigued from the, that long run the day before and going longer that one instead of 10, making that 15. Trust me, it'll get hard enough. If you do a Friday 20, a Saturday 30, and a Sunday 20, so now you just ran 70 miles in 36 hours, you're pretty much ready for a 100 miler. <laughs> and you can kick out of that having run them all clean, light, efficient, um, technically sound. And you can come out of that injury-free and recovered in a week or two. You're pretty good. You're, you're very well done for in your prep for a 100 miler or 100K, whatever it is. So that's the reason for that. All right, let's dive into the second question for this week. It's from Chad. Excuse me, Chet. I hope all is well. I've been an avid listener to your podcast for a little over a year. I really appreciate your guidance on endurance training. Your insights and encouragement have really helped me explore new horizons in my athletic pursuits. Thank for you. Thank you for all the time you put in. I recently completed my first trail race run race, 17 miles, 4,500 feet of elevation gain. And I must say all of the events I've completed competed in, this one gave me the most anxiety. A lot of new things thrown at me at once, including ice pack trails that prompted me to buy micro spikes at the last minute, which I needed for the whole race. What surprised me, however, was how unprepared I was for the toll the climbing took on my legs. Despite hiking, walking, most of the steep incline, I was hindered by muscle fatigue for the latter part of the event. In hindsight, I clearly did not train well for this. My training was mostly on the road, not by design, but by necessity. I live in the Denver area, and trails have stayed mostly muddy since October. However, I was mindful to incorporate many hills in my training runs. What would be a good approach to train and prepare for climbing, even smaller ascents like the one in this race? What percentage of training runs on the road are acceptable for a trail race? Good questions and uh, valuable input there. So um, 17 miles, 4,500 feet of elevation gain, which is exactly the running we'll be doing at um, Swim Run in Catalina. So <laughs> pretty steep stuff as well. In hindsight, I clearly didn't train well for this event. My training was mostly on the road. So I would highly recommend for those of you that are getting ready for any type of trail race to keep your volume on the on trails when you can. Now, I understand many of you don't get to run on trails as easily, and it requires some logistics. So, but when you can, and when you're simulating, and when you're going out and measuring or trying to emulate the course, right, because you might go to places where you have a similar terrain as the course, make it on trail for sure. Um, because you wrote by design, not by design, but by necessity. I live in the Denver area and the trails have stayed mostly muddy since October. Well, um, you can get muddy, it's fine. The proper shoes and the proper gear allow you to run muddy trails as well. Um, it's more important there, again, to simulate and find the eventual, the um, eventual, the occasional um, trail routes, um, terrain that you're going to run in. 
However, I was mindful to incorporate many hills in my training runs. Good. But again, pavement running hills is different than trail hills. The trail hills are steeper. They're not, um, remember, pavement has to fit certain specifications to be even paved. So they're never as steep. They're more gradual, as well as the footing is more solid, and it allows you to find a steady rhythm running up, even if you're hiking them. But trails are so different in their footing and so forth that it's a different muscular activation. Um, what would be a good approach to train and prepare for climbing even smaller ascents like the one in this race? What percentage of training on runs on the road are acceptable for a trail race? I already answered that part as much as you can in the terrain that you're planning to run. I basically run all my running on trail. Um, I have road outside my door or I have trails outside my door, but I prefer trails. Um, it builds strength, it build, build, builds lateral movement and strength in my ankles and my lower legs in order to deal with the roots and the rocks and the steps and the quick um, foot feet needed for descending. Um, but again, if you're not able to, I would simulate on the weekends. And then the other a aspect of your question, I would do um, step ups. Step ups are a great way and a phenomenal way to prepare said athlete for any type of hill or mountainous climbing when you are not in the area that you're able to train. So that means that you're doing it loaded or unloaded or however we can go about it with putting weight on our body, maybe a vest, as we're doing step-ups. And they don't have to be huge step-ups, 20 inches, 16 inches, 24 inches, depending on how tall you are, and also depending on the event you're getting ready for. Um, so for example, if you're doing a big mountain um, event, let's say Hard Rock or Wasatch, those step-ups need to be steeper because the terrain is steeper and lasts longer and you're really leaning into the mountain as you're hiking up them. Um, but if your terrain is more rolling and not as steep, you might want to do shorter step-ups, but more of them. So there's many ways to train in for the mountains in the city. But in your case in Denver, um, I would get out on trails. I would simulate and really prepare logistics prior to get to a place where I can emulate the terrain changes in the course. You know, in this case, if you're doing a 17 mile, 4,500 foot elevation game, maybe find a 13 miler or a 12 miler with 3,000 feet of elevation gain or 3,300 feet of elevation gain. Again, to get the body ready for what it will be doing. Maybe not all of it, but a good sense of it. And then step ups, step ups. And you might think, how many step ups? Well, we're talking five, six, seven, eight hundred. Um, whether it's loaded with 10 pounds, 5 pounds, 15 pounds, I like 25 pounds to get people ready for the true hiking nature of it. Um, I have my Everest athletes doing 2,000, 2,500 um, step ups with runs after in order to get their durability and their muscular endurance up for the big mountains. And those 2,500, even up to 3,000 step ups on a 20 or 24 inch box, depending on how tall they are and their inseam, is also loaded 20 pounds, 30 pounds. So 
It could be a variety of ways, but I am a huge fan of those step-ups. Now, do I do it myself? No, because I have the mountains directly outside my door. Now, I'm with Mount Tam and a good 387 miles of trails available to me, quite steep, quite long, quite short, quite sudden, however I want it, and I can do those repeats. But overall, in general, step-ups are a great way to simulate for the mountains and get the body ready for what you're talking about um, for when we're hiking. And you know how good that feels when you're done with um, (laughs) doing loaded step-ups and then doing a run unloaded? You feel like you're bouncing up the mountains. You feel like you're bouncing up the hills. So, Or a weight vest, right? Again, um, I have a weight vest that I love using for when I'm getting ready for big mountain stuff. I won't be this year because the 100 miler I'm doing is not that much elevation gain. It'll actually be quite fast. But um, if I were getting ready for big mountain stuff, had I got into, let's say, Western States this year, I would have been doing a lot of stuff with vest hiking, right? Because then the running unloaded will only get easier, more efficient, smoother, um, more technically sound. So I hope that helps. You might also wonder, like, if I'm in the big city, right, or in a big urban area, how to get ready for the the mountains, right? Because many of you might not have that opportunity to even, like Chet was, to get in, in Denver, you're already at altitude, and you could drive an hour or two and get into some solid mountains. But... How else can we train for the mountains in the city? And that is especially um, sports specific, right? You want to um, be ready for the downhills. So a lot of us think about running uphill, but we don't think about running downhill. And so those step-ups and those squats and those lunges and so forth get us ready for concentric strength going uphill. But we need to be ready for downhills. And so that demand on eccentric leg strength and the gravity of our body weight going downhill will be important here. And so you want to keep that in mind when you're doing jump lunges or when you're jumping down off those boxes or things like that. So that you want to be able to add that to your training coming down off the box. So let's say you have your loaded Again, this is progression. You don't, you can't start loaded. It is waiting for injury to happen. So, or start loaded very light, five pounds maybe, right? Um, or even with barbells in your hands if you don't have a proper load. So step ups with barbells in your hand, but also step downs. You're starting on a 20-inch box or a 16-inch box or some sort of step. And then you're stepping down with weight. Again, get your body ready for running downhills because in most mountain runs, you got to run downhill as well. And the problem there is it ruins our quads, it ruins our knees, and it ruins our hips and hip flexors flexors if we're not prepared for it. And then even running the flats and the more runnable sections are not available to us because of that. So keep that in mind. You also want to have a strong core for any type of um, big mountain run, right? So squats, lunges, lunges, hinge lifts, um, step-ups, of course, um, but also a core that holds that all together. Sandbag get-ups, a strong core, um, bridges, right? Lots of front bridges and lots of strength in that 
um, midsection to support upper body relax carrying the weight whether it's your pack whether it's your fluids whether it's your food or even if it's nothing your body is broken down into basically two pieces and they're moving counter of each other. Your upper body is turning and moving relaxed as it's running and your lower body is doing the work and carrying the load and um, also absorbing the impact. And so the core, the midsection connects the two and when that is weak and it's not connecting the two properly, relaxed upper body or backpack and so forth moving counter to what the lower body is doing, then again, our running form falls apart. So stay focused on that core by doing the movements of the mountain of the running and being aware of that, the, the connection between the two. That's why loaded step ups are so good. That's why sandbag get-ups are so good, Turkish get-ups, things like that, because it ties all the body together, the upper body with the lower body. Um, I love lunges for that, jump lunges and jump squats, because again, you're exploding and using your entire body as part of that um, bigger engine. Um, what else to train um, in this big city, let's say in New York for what when you're doing a big Western mountain um, trail run, um, you can go obviously climbing stairs, wearing that vest or wearing that pack or carrying something, um, go into a big building and just go upstairs a lot. Not only will this train quad, core, and calf strength, but again, you're getting your cardio engine ready for those um, big mountains. And again, a lot of big mountain um, core, uh, core runs, ultra runs are a lot of hiking. And your ability to do that loaded and step ups and stairs in the city will prepare you for that hiking time. For some big ultras in the Western mountains, I would say 40% of the time you're hiking. So being efficient and prepared for that is great. Leg blasters is my favorite in general for the downhill, right? Because you're jumping into the air and you're landing on your legs. And the more fatigue you get from the leg blasters, um, meaning jump squats and jump lunges and single lunges and single squats as a group of 10, um, and in, in order, so you're doing about 50 per round or then eventually going to 100 per round with short rest, many rounds. Again, the landing on your legs from elevation, meaning jumping or coming down from a step, prepares the chain to absorb the impact, not push off the impact, eccentric versus concentric. Um, and it's the downhill, which is pretty intense and it creates a ton of soreness. And then, you know, try to simulate those weekends. Get somewhere on a long weekend where you can do that type of training and, and test your body, um, where you can run with weight or a pack or some uh, a bunch of water in your backpack and you're going self-supported in the Adirondacks, in upstate New York, in Maine, in um, 
the Pennsylvania mountains, if you're, let's, I'm talking all New York City now, or Atlanta, head out to the, the gaps and things like that, right? There's places you can go to simulate your training and spend a long weekend out there. Not only is it an adventure and experience, but it's also you learn a ton again to take back to your current environment to apply then in order to be a better athlete come event day. Um, so those mini simulations and those events and those opportunities to learn and test gear and test nutrition and test mental fitness and be out there long enough, all those things, right? You want to train the way you'll race and or, or take part in the event. So you want to wear the same clothes, the same pack, the same foods, the same supplements, the same gels, the same drinks, the same everything that you're planning for your race, for your event. And you don't want to find out at event that your shoulder straps aren't don't work for you or that it bounces and rattles too much in your backpack and therefore causes a blister or drives you absolutely bananas or that you'll be throwing up from all those astronaut food gels after a couple hours. Again, simulation weekends, long weekends are great for that, right? And then finally, you know, remember, this is all part of the journey that you signed up for. You knew when you signed up for the event that it, you live in the city <laughs> and that you're getting ready for a big mountain ultra. So knowing that and embracing that is part of the difficulty of the journey, but the one that will make running in the mountains and the results so much more special. Doing 1,500 step-ups or 2,000 step-ups, wearing a 20 to 30, heck, even 40-pound pack, depending on what you're getting ready for and how big you are, is mind-numbing. It's awful. It's boring. Two and a half hours of doing step-ups, yeah, that's how long 2,500 to 3,000 can take. There's nothing fun about it. But again, when you're in the mountains and you're doing your event, it's not a question of how you prepared for it. It's that you're doing the event and that you're feeling it and that you feel prepared and you're able to enjoy it and take in the experience properly despite the drudgery and the boredom and the vomiting um, monotony of doing, let's say, step-ups. There's, no, um, there's no way around it, right? And you know, there's no special results or special categories for the busy executive who works 60 hours a week, right? Um, there's no asterisk that we can put that says, well, came from the big city, and therefore this result would actually be different, but they can't train. The, the mountains, the result, the terrain, the event doesn't care, right? And so getting the outcome that you're looking for um, is only going to be more difficult if you resent doing the work embrace it putting in the time and working the proper training to your mountain ultra adds to the overall experience and makes the result makes your finish line more enriching and authentic that's what you want to keep on keep in mind we're not designed to be doing step-ups in a gym in some building in New York City surrounded by the concrete jungle. No, but if you embrace it and work with that pain and close your eyes, envision your outcome and feeling better about it, and it therefore allows you to have a bigger smile on your face for 
many hours while you're in those western mountains getting doing your event and knowing that you prepared for it properly and feeling alive and bouncing and surging through um, the terrain as well as the surge of excitement and peace of having prepared properly surging through your body that's the fun of this in many ways right it's the training is part of the experience <clears throat> excuse me and that's something we don't want to forget as we're training in the mountain right we want to understand the struggle who cares if there's a struggle right nobody cares come event day what the struggle was that's exactly the point it's training, it's not exercising, and there is going to be struggle and difficulty with it, right? If you struggle with step-ups, if you struggle with kicking in the pool, if you struggle with long, boring, easy zone two bike rides, that's exactly the point. It's training, it's not exercising, and exercising is comfortable. Exercising is doing what we want. Exercise is waking up and knowing we're going to do something, but what do I feel like? What's fun today? That's not training. That's exercising. Training is hard. It's specific. It's uncomfortable. It's doing things that are out of our comfort zone. That's why there's a stimulus with it. And that's the whole point. Nobody cares if you struggle with it, whatever it is. Come Avente. And nor will you. You will want to have known that you expanded your abilities and your and have a different perspective on difficulties because of the struggles you have overcome. If you can do two, three hours of step-ups in a gym, in a room, in a big city, staring at a mirror or staring at a TV or whatever it is, um, or staring at a wall, you know how easy time will go by in the big mountains with stimulating scenery? That two and a half hours will turn into six hours before you even wake up. And that's the beauty as well. So that's the big mountains for you. All right, I think we're on to the final question here of the day. And that'll give us a solid podcast for this week. And it looks like we're actually on a trail running theme here. So hi, Chris, thank you for all that you do for the endurance sports community. Your podcast is extremely helpful to me and to me. And I appreciate the time you give your listeners. I'm aiming at a 100-mile event in August. I have a 50K planned in late February, 50-mile in late April, and my first 100-miler, A race, the first weekend in August. Here's my question. Can you describe what simulation weekend or weekends look like for a 100-mile race? Thank you, Roger. Roger is 59 years old. So let's think this through a bit. Um, the timing of the events that Roger's planning to do sound pretty good. You know, I would probably, in a perfect world, move that 50K and 50-miler 50 back a little bit closer to the event. Nothing dramatic. But the learning from both those events and the builds will be so dramatic and helpful that it'll allow that two-month period to actually train and adapt and adjust and um, tweak the training plan for the 100 mile race. Now the interesting part here is let's keep this in mind. So I'm aiming to do an event in August. It's actually the first week in August. So basically June and July are for prep. Um, 50K planned in late February, which hopefully now 
Roger is pr- feeling pretty good about 20 mile runs, a 50 miler in late April. Um, so by the time he recovers from that 50 miler in late April, we're talking mid-ish end of May, that gives him all of June and all of July to sort of really ramp up in prep for the 100 miler. Now, here's my approach and here's my thought around the a 100 mile training plan, even a 100K training plan. And that is in a perfect world. Again, all this is ideal, right? And if you don't have the time to achieve these outcomes, then you really want to consider how to adjust downward in the volume for them because you don't want to get injured. Remember, our primary goal is to get to the event um, and the event being the longest day, the fittest day that we apply, not in training. So obviously for a 100 miler, we're never going to run a 100 miler in training. Even an Ironman, we're not going to do a full Ironman in training. We want to hit that day with the ability, the freshness, and the prep to know that we can do that day to the best of our current ability. So with that training plan, what I like to do is first build up the tolerance of a 50K on a weekday. What does that mean? That means your ability to do a 50K on any given day of the week Let's say you start in the morning, 7 a.m., 6 a.m., pretty early. Then you're done around noon or 1 o'clock or even 2 o'clock. You shower, you eat, and you move on with your day. That's the beauty of a weekday 50K. It doesn't tax you that much. You've gotten to the point that 31 to 32 miles you could just do. Now, of course, not every week. That's not realistic either, and nor is that the right volume or the tax on the body. But that you get to a fitness level that a 50K you recover from pretty quickly, 48 hours, 72 hours of very light or no training, and then move on with the next adaptations or what you're looking to do in that micro um, phase. So we've gotten to a point, hopefully, as Roger is prepping um, or getting through the 50 miler, that a 30K, uh, that a 32 miler, 31 miler on a weekday, middle of the week, or even on a weekend, doesn't tax him, doesn't bother him. So he's taking the 50 miler, using it as a sort of super progression. And the 50K is something that he can just put away. I bring this up because I like our ability that the distance, the greatest distance we can do and just put away within 48 hours, 72 hours of recovery is sort of our anchor for our simulation weekend. So let's say you didn't get to a point where you can just put away a 31 miler. Let's say you can only put away a 25 miler. Well, that becomes your anchor value for the simulation weekend. But again, I'm talking in perfect world and hopefully Roger, given this buildup and this volume stays healthy and everything's going well. And he feels pretty good about a 50 K 31 miles being able to be absorbed and not too taxing and just a weekday 50 K. So that becomes the anchor of our simulation weekend. So now we're talking that on a Saturday morning, 6 AM, he has that anchor 50 K, um, 31 miler that he's building his simulation weekend around his max volume weekend around. All right. So now we want to think about like earlier concepts, um, least amount of recovery time, but still effective enough 
that you're running good form technique and without depleting yourself too much that it has a long-term tax and effect on the body along with that somewhat running with normal glycogen stores and your ability to actually run versus slog through it hike a lot so we're talking friday afternoon now afternoon not morning afternoon ideally after let's say two o'clock we're going to do 10 15 maybe even 20 miles depends on how fit we are but let's say 15. so that 15 will take three hours let's say three-ish hours so afternoon and he's in August, right? So this is in June and July, he can do this. So late June, so the days are nice and long. So you can start at four and run till eight. So there you go, there's your 15. Eight o'clock, eat something, get to bed, rehydrate, wake up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., whatever, in order to be ready to run by 6.30 or 7 a.m. That's where you run your weekday 50K, your distance that you know, your money, big distance, 31 miles. All right, so now we're at 15 plus 31 miles. Hopefully that only takes you about six-ish hours with stops and stuff, seven hours. So two o'clock, you're done. You take two, three hours to fuel, replenish, recover, really focused regeneration. It's hard because um, that window has to be very specific and focused. But again, it's a simulation weekend. That's what it, we do. And that's one of the things I talk about at my training camps, whether it's in Telluride or in Sonoma, is these short windows, how to maximize recovery for the most effective afternoon workout or next morning workout, right? So we've done the 15 in the afternoon on Friday. We've done the 31 Saturday morning. Now Saturday evening, we're going to do another 10. So now we're talking two, three hours later. Five o'clock, we're going to run 10 from five to seven. Again, tight windows, not easy to do. The body is just not recovered, but recovered enough to at least run effectively. Glycogen stores and hydration are brought back up. Um, so we're talking 15, 31, 10. Now we're at 56 miles in basically 24 to 26 hours. Okay, now... Sunday morning to close out this simulation weekend, we're going to mess with it, let's say maybe 20 miles or another 15 miles. I prefer 20. But again, this is depending on the fitness level and the progression and where you are with your training. But 15 to 20. So now we've done um, 56 plus 15 would make it um, 71 or 76 miles within 36 40 hours. That's about as tight as we can get in a simulation weekend without shelling ourselves, enough recovery in between, still having effective training time, not enough recovery to actually be recovered in order to, um, so we're somewhat fatigued, bingo. We just did 76 miles in a matter of from Friday afternoon at let's say two or three, let's say three, to Sunday at noon, so that's literally 48, uh, that's less than 48, that's 40 hours, right? So that's a beautiful progression. That's a beautiful simulation. You able to do that, you are ready for a 100 miler. Because again, remember the week leading up to that Friday wasn't necessarily less. It's your usual cycle, your usual routine. We're not tapered for it. So you're doing a regular week, Plus that 76 miles, now you're definitely over 100 miles for the week. 
And as we've talked about earlier and in the podcast many episodes ago, your 100-mile training is about how to decrease the time that you're getting ready for a 100-miler. So we just did it in 100 in 100 miles basically in six or seven days. You get to that point, you're doing pretty darn good in your progression. You get through that healthy. You get through that without um, getting too hungry or depleted, right? Hungry meaning that you're losing weight the days after or dehydrated or just a variety of different body reactions to that type of volume. It should be a gentle progression that you get to this maximum point because this is a maximum point. And I would say this needs to be about six, seven weeks prior, six weeks prior to that first week of August 100 miler, because that gives you time to recover from it, maybe one more mini peak, and then that's it. So, um, but the 50 miler already gave you such a good sense of knowing that you can do it. So um, do it being also a 100 miler, because as we say, anything beyond 50 is mental. It's not like you're training for a different race, 60 to 100. You're ta- you're, it's more about, at that level of fatigue, 10, 12 hours into running, you're just putting one foot in front of the other and getting good about using that sort of turnover, that stride, that efficiency, that mental strength to do that remaining 8 to 10 to 12 hours of running. Um, it's not like you're magically going to feel better or change your stride or have an acceleration or any type of anything there. It's all about steady. We keep going, we keep fueling, and we work our way into that space. And so that's sort of how it works. That's how I would structure a 100-miler simulation weekend. Um, The beauty there is that it does take a ton of prep and discipline and the weeks in preparing for prior and how to put this together. Um, And not a lot of athletes can do that. I would say most of my uh, 100-mile athletes, I don't put them through this type of progression because they didn't get to the lead-up progression properly, healthy, um, in a normal way, normal being that their body handles it physically, right, mentally, and then also that the body handles it from a fatigue standpoint, long-lasting fatigue, adrenal fatigue, right, depletion, um, all those things need to come together in order to have these type of progressions. And it usually takes two, three years to get to these points. It's not just something that you say, this year I'm going to run a 100-miler. Like a lot of people recommend and a lot of coaches and a lot of people in the industry say, um, you shouldn't just go from a 50K to a 100-miler. I mean, it's a it's a dramatic uh, toll on the body. And very few can make it through injury-free um, without long-term damage of some sort. And the interesting thing here is it's not necessarily the long-term damage in the build-up to the 100-miler. It's six months after the 100-miler. It's nine months after the 100-miler that the body all of a sudden doesn't can't do it anymore. Adrenally fatigued, some sort of um, muscular issue, some sort of bone, hip, lower back issue, some sort of um, IT band issue, because the, the body to healthily absorb 100 miles 
24 to 30 hours of running, often in the big mountains, is an incredible toll. And so the resilience and the durability we have to build up to that is quite long term. And if you just want to do it and then don't care what happens after, that's a different story. But many athletes love what they felt and observed and learned and experienced in their 100 miler that they want to get back to running again four, five, six weeks after their 100 miler and experience that high and that curiosity and that growth again. And so it's a, it's a difficult balance to run by but all these things are so important to keep in mind and that's what coaching is right coaching is guiding you through these uh, and, and supporting you and educating you on all these different ways to go about it and being ever so careful and ever so gentle and teaching you the athlete how to listen to your body most effectively because there are times when you're not just listening to your body but you also need to shut it down because you're you've gotten good about you know what this just doesn't feel right or you know what i feel good i actually feel pretty good but everything here in my data and my sensations and my volume and this micro progression or this macro progression or cycle points to i need 10 days of light activity so um all that to keep in mind when answering this question. So I hope that helps. I received an email the other day from one of my athletes and I wanted to describe to him how the three-legged stool works in two different ways. And the email talked about, well, I'll quote, overall, I continue to feel pretty good about my fitness. I really like the three-legged stool approach. I think about that a lot as I navigate the training and life in general. I try to balance the stresses. If one becomes overwhelming, then I have to flex the others up or down. Unfortunately, the first to flex down is training. I work to keep a long view and realize that I'm still moving forward in that aspect. I agree with this completely. That is a very good way to look at it. But the other way to look at it and in combination with this way, is that understanding that there's two ways we're working on the three-legged stool. One is the length of the stool leg. Of course, when the volume and the training hours go up, that leg gets longer and the balance of the platform of the stool shifts. It changes and there's different things happening, right? Others might get shorter um, and or, you know, others might get a lot of attention too at different times. That's not the point. We've talked about this enough. But the other aspect of the three-legged stool is that if you're not increasing the volume and you're keeping all the legs of the stool somewhat steady, you're making them stronger. You're making them thicker. You're making those legs more durable, able to withstand stress and things that might come in the way of the priorities that we live by. And that is the important thing to keep in mind. Just because you can't get in the training that day doesn't mean you can't work on thickening, strengthening that leg of the stool. We're not looking for balance. We're never going to get equilibrium of that plant platform above, but we strive for it. We're thinking balance. We're thinking maintaining those three legs 
right? Understand priority. Understand that because we're thickening and we're more durable and resilient with those three legs, family, career, and our personal care with regards to endurance athletics, with those three legs, if they're getting stronger, that means our priorities are set in the proper order. We're focused on those three buckets of our day first. Too often, there's too much fluff in our day. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but really go through this exercise as you enter this season. Are my priorities in order? Or am I spending a lot of my day in fluff, in wasted time? Am I spending my time in one of three buckets? Is this family time and is this quality family time? Am I present? Am I in it and am I not thinking about other things? Is this work time, continuing education time, career advancement time, growth time, um, whatever it is, that bucket? Or is this my training time bucket where I'm developing myself my athletic self, expressing my athletic self, and part of the long-term goal, desired outcome that I have with my ultra-endurance endeavors. Now, you might have a fourth bucket, let's say church or community or coaching little league or soccer or basketball or whatever it is in your community. But again, if you have those four buckets defined, if you have those legs of the stool defined, what are you spending your day on? Now, of course, you can think about this at the end of the day. How did my day go? How did I spend it? Was I effective in my priorities? Then yes, good. We're good. We're moving forward. And you will feel more accomplished, more focused, more driven, more um, um, accomplished, yeah, is the way to put it with regards to your day because you were very focused in the specificity of those four buckets, three buckets, whatever you are. It's the wasted time in between. Now, you might say, well, Chris, I just need some veg time. Yeah, veg time is totally fine. I get that. But veg time is not time in front of the TV just staring at something that isn't effective. Maybe that's reading a book. And if you fall asleep on that paragraph over and over again every night because you're trying to read that same book and you keep falling asleep, well, good. Guess what? That's what your body is telling you. You need recovery. You need sleep. Let it go. And as we're going through this endeavor of endurance training, maybe other buckets fall off. You chose to take on this ultra endurance event, and this is how this works, right? If you change your expectations, maybe you can add other buckets, right? But currently, in the way we're looking at it, and your mindset needs to be, am I focused on the buckets that I, I committed to? There's ways to do this in the morning with intentions and journaling or writing down or planning. There's a way to do it at night, the day before, reflecting. There's also ways to do it during the day. Where it, let's say every three hours you take two minutes, two minutes to just say, am I working on the right things? Am I focused on the right things? Am I um, working within my buckets, right? Even mini buckets at work. These three projects I'm working, these three priorities at work I have, am I focused on them or am I filling time just answering emails or surfing the web? 
Same thing is evening time. Could this time be better spent with my family or am I vegging out in front of the TV? That's wasted time. You signed up for an ultra endurance event where this isn't part of the equation. Now, of course, and this happens in my world for sure, and with many of my athletes, you worked your way through the three buckets of the day. You have extra time. Have at it. Now you are at You can have veg time. Now you can have fluff time. If by four o'clock you've done your workouts, you feel good about your family time, you feel good about your career day, well, good. Or by five o'clock or seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever that is, don't forget about that sleep is part of the being an athlete time and you want to get a fair amount of that. But there's definitely days like that or weekends where you can say, all right, I have some extra time here. Everything else is pretty good. The legs of the stool are pretty solid. I've attended to my priorities for the day. Now I get some downtime. Absolutely. And all part of it. So keep in mind, what's my priority? What are my buckets? How am I getting through my day? And I find that the athletes that get better and continue to improve on this have more and more time, not just for training, but for better family experiences and time. They're feeling good about their work and their career and their advancement and their um, presence at work and how they are flourishing there. Again, what's the priority? How am I spending my day with my time buckets? So something that comes up with my athletes a fair amount and that I wanted to close this week's podcast on and just again, if it's something that you can work through or anybody can just work through of say, setting some intentions and how I'm spending my day and my time, it only makes us better. There is no downside to it. And I can't tell you how many athletes I've worked with over the past 25 years with going through their day and them with me recognizing, man, I spend a lot of time doing nothing or doing wasting time or not effective use of my time. And that is where we can achieve great things as ultra endurance athletes, despite having a family, despite having a busy career, priorities and buckets. So All right, you guys. Well, you have a wonderful week. I hope you had some value out of this week's podcast. I used a new recording format. I hope uh, it's improved and I hope many of you notice the improvement and it allows me to edit and fade and cut and delete and do things. I could even use music here, all kinds of stuff. But next week will be the new format. I will introduce that next week and I'm excited to do that with all of you and get your feedback. But until then, questions, feedback, thoughts, complaints, send them my way. I got a few complaints regarding the audio and how it wasn't very clear with the interview. That's totally fine. And I will continue to work on improving that and getting better at it. But more to come. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Have Enjoy the Super Bowl. Obviously, as a Bay Area um resident um we have pretty big stakes in this game here with the 49ers so i'm going to enjoy that 
thoroughly. I'm off to Florida next week to visit my mom. She's alone while my dad is in Europe taking care of a few things. So I'm going to go visit my 84-year-old mother and uh, spend a couple days with her. But overall, that won't affect my week and next week's podcast. And I'm looking forward to talking to you all on episode 128. Have a great week. Focus on the buckets and the priorities. And next week, we'll dive into more ultra endurance growth, human potential, mental strength, resilience, all that that we learn as ultra endurance athletes with the right mindset, with the right care, with the right nutrition, with the right recovery, with the right sleep to be the best athletic version of ourselves. All right. Thank you so much.